people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Na to jsem ještě nepil. Tak na to. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. Good to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Matthew Asprey-Gear. Always good to be back here, Mike. Checktember 2022 continues with a look at Ivan Passer's Intimate Lighting, the first feature film from director Ivan Passer. It is the story of Peter, a cello player who, along with his girlfriend, Stepa, returns home to his village to stay with his friend Bombas and his family. The film meanders a bit, showing us a slice of Bombas's life and allowing for several comic and poignant scenes. If there's anything to spoil in this movie, we're going to go ahead and do our darndest just to do that. So, Spencer, were you familiar with intimate lighting before we started discussing this episode? No. You know, this was another great opportunity to see a film that's new to me, and I have to compliment you Mike, on your unerring instinct to bring me on for films that I really love. And Matthew, how about yourself? I'd seen it before because uh, when I was, I teach a course on uh, 70s or New Hollywood, and I was teaching, uh, doing a lecture on Cutter's Way, much later, uh, Passer film. And so I kind of went back into the the earlier years and uh, yeah, then came to this one. And it's, I mean, I I do have trouble finding this kind of... uh, telltale directorial style between the different films. He was really quite a broad director in the, the different films he approached. But yeah, I came back to this one and was really delighted to come back to it again. This was one that has been on my to watch pile for a long time. That image of, I think it's Bombus with the trumpet coming out of his ear like that. I have seen so many times. I want to say there was like uh, facets put out a whole bunch of new wave films 
on DVD, I want to say late 90s, and this was one of them. Actually, I take it back, it might have been VHS. So there were things like Closely Watched Trains and this one, and I'm trying to remember if it was Fireman's Ball and Loves of a Blonde, but just a lot of the classics of the Czech New Wave were released at this time. And that picture from the cover of Intimate Lighting, I was more familiar with that than the film itself. I'm pretty unfamiliar with Passer's work, though it is interesting that he kind of I don't want to say he lived in the shadow of Milos Forman. He definitely was a collaborator with Forman, as was one of the screenwriters of this film. They ran in, well, obviously, they both went to, or probably everybody involved with this went to FAMU. Passer ended up being kicked out of FAMU, but he stuck around with the rest of the uh, early Czech New Wave folks. He, I want to say he had a hand in Pearls of the Deep. He was along with Foreman on things like Fireman's Ball and Loves of a Blonde. And then like Foreman, he moved over to the U.S. in the early 70s and started making American films. Like you mentioned, Cutter's Way is one of his best known American films. There's a lot of crossover between this movie, at least in my mind, and those early Foreman films, even to some of the things like the use of musicians reminds me a lot of Audition, the Foreman film, even reminds me a little bit of The Fireman's Ball. And then I want to say like this whole idea of like the practicing musicians is in a Yugoslavian film that I love a lot. Man, it's not a bird, but this definitely is much more in the, obviously, in the Czech camp. The music starts us off, and we start off with a conductor talking to a very small orchestra, and I love his energy. I love the credits against the blackboard. This whole opening scene, I was hoping that we would stay with this conductor through the entire thing, because I just love his vibe. It's one of the things that's come up in, a, in, in other Czech movies that we've watched and that I've seen, but that sense that it's more of a collective or, or a chorus for your, your cast rather than main character that you're going to follow is, is one of the things that, yeah, we do want to follow that guy because he's really interesting and charming right out of the gate. It's not like Passer is sort of throwing us off any kind of scent or whatever. It's more, we're going to begin with somebody who's not a main character that sort of sets us up, I think, in a different way for, you know, following our, our group of main characters. But it really doesn't function as a single protagonist kind of narrative. It's not driven in that way. And the interrelationships between people are more interesting and delicate. And I don't know that that, that beginning is meant, you know, with the orchestra, is meant precisely to signal anything to us. But I think it's part of the general outlook that I really admire in these films. They can be highly observant about the individuals in them, while also, you know, making story out of the collective actions and bumping into each other throughout. And there's also just the fact that Peter is absent from the rehearsal is kind of, uh, he's kind of conspicuous by his absence when we get to the end of that sequence of the rehearsal. We, we learn that he's going to be appearing. So it does kind of set him up to be the protag- protagonist of this film, even if, yeah, he really doesn't in any way conform to our usual expectations of what a protagonist in this sort of situation will do. Yes, an interesting film in that Peter and Stepa 
they have their counterpoints in Bombas or Kaja, as his wife calls them, and Maras. So we've got the city versus the country kind of thing. We've seen that in a thousand films as far as that tension between city and country, and especially the man who's coming home to his old village and then kind of checking in on things and coming back and being reunited with a friend of his. And they, they share a lot of drinks. They do a lot of things together. Like I said, this film just kind of meanders. It just kind of gets into a rhythm once Peter comes to the the old village and just kind of goes from there. And we never go back to the city. We're just kind of out there in the wilderness, not really wilderness, but out there in the village and just kind of hanging out with him for a while and going through like little adventures. And we get a lot of – I was surprised at how much Steppa we get. I really was pulling for her more than anybody else in the cast. I really started to focus in just on her. I don't know if it's that she's one, a familiar face, two, a beautiful face, but three, I think because she's really super interesting. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what her impressions are of this because she's really the stranger coming back to town because Peter's been there and Bombas and Maris live there. Yeah, and she kind of disappears a little bit in the <clears throat> the last third of the film, you know, when it becomes, you know, it waits in favor of the two men in, in that, that last stretch of the film. But I'm with you from her introduction and her interest in the children, you know, the watchful way that uh, that she's taking everything in. She's she's a quite engaging character. And uh, I really I really love that scene that she has with the man who walks up to the fence and talks to her and she 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 has to give the the pronunciation of her name and they go back and forth and it's obvious he has uh, certain handicaps that you know it's not named or anything but that this is this is someone who is limited in certain ways and she's very instantly kindly with him in this one scene that he has in the movie and that man has just an amazing beautiful face the kind of face that we don't often see in american films so you know really really exciting but she's she's a great character Pastor said that scene was the only improvised scene in the movie. And uh, the reason he calls her Vera is because that was the actress's name. And he couldn't remember that uh, that uh, she was supposed to be Steppa in the film. And so that's kind of all just improvised out of that moment. That's wonderful. And that's that's the kind of odd thing that you wouldn't write because you'd worry that it's confusing or, or that you wouldn't think exactly to do. But it, it has this very... Um, Obviously, it's it's out of the improvisation, but it has this very real quality of chance meeting, and somebody decides to call you by another name or or whatever. It's uh, quite quite wonderful. I think that's my favorite scene in the film. And it's surprising that that was the only improvised scene because so many of these actors, like this gentleman that played Yaros, so many of these actors aren't professional actors, especially when it comes to like the grandparents. You know, these are people that they've have been in other Czech films before, but it's only because, oh, you were, you know, they kind of pick people off of the street almost. And it's like, oh, you're really good in this. How about you be in this role as well? So like, especially when it comes to like, you know, the, the mother and father and loves of a blonde or the conductor from audition, just these like regular people that would be introduced to these. And I always enjoyed that about Foreman's work and some of the other Czech filmmakers where they would use both professional and non-professional actors, both at the same time. So having this Yaros in here, I was just like, 
this is perfect. I love this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think this is my favorite part of the film as well. I love too, that she's eating this apple. So I'm just like, am I supposed to be thinking about Eve here? Like, is she the temptress? But no, she's not. She seems pure as the driven snow. There's a lot of times where I'm like, she could be making fun of these folks. And there's even that wonderful scene at the dinner table where they're fighting about who gets the piece of chicken and she starts to get the giggles. And then you just hear that roarous laughter of hers later on when she's just still laughing about the chicken. Yeah, it's not a film that pities its characters. It's it's such a warm hearted film and so generous towards all of these characters with their foibles. And there is that cliche of the, you know, the sophisticates from the city coming to this rural place and, you know, kind of there being a big clash of sensibilities there. And it's actually incredibly warm hearted towards all the characters and uh, both the visitors and the people who live there. And uh, that's what one reason why this is so refreshing, I think. When there's no villains of this piece, I mean, there's no petty bureaucrat who's there to just ruin their day. There's no real thrust of this narrative as far as, oh, you know, you would think with the opening rehearsal that, oh, we're all leading up to a big concert and that's going to be the end of the film. And all of these little characters that we've been introduced to throughout the movie would then show up at the end and somehow, I don't know, the kids would start crying or whatever, just something that was going to lead us through this. But no, it's really just kind of a slice of life. It's it's a very naturalistic type of film. It's not without conflict entirely, but it's almost without traditional dramatic conflict that is kind of building and guiding the plot. It's the little conflicts between people in these exchanges, like over who's going to eat this piece of chicken and how that's going to work. Like, yes, that's a conflict, but this is not like a big plot conflict to carry us through the movie. And it's also a kind of conflict where the stakes are extremely low, but, you know, just delightful to watch. Yeah. And I've watched this a few times and it just kind of grabs you and carries you along. It's just like, here's this character. Here's this scene. The the second, third time I watched it, I started to notice more ironic cuts that they would do. Things like the whole thing in the uh, garage with the chickens and how we see and you know, if folks are sensitive to animal death, there is the death of at least one chicken in this. But I love that ironic cut from the dead chicken to then, boom, we're at a funeral. <laughs> and it's just like, wait, they're having a funeral for this chicken? No. And just the idea of the ritual in that this is one of the few places where they can play music at as well. And just the opportunities for these guys to be able to play their music and that both of these main two male characters are musicians. And then they, you know, it's kind of them bonding over the music. I really liked. And the bit with the chicken is really interesting too, on the level of this kind of gentleness, because the sequence builds up as comedy to like, now all the chickens are coming, they're all over the car, and then the guy's going to drive out. And by ending that scene on the shot of the dying chicken, the way that it's shot, my heart goes out to that chicken and very much the way that that rabbit sort of stretching into its death and rules the game is such a heartbreaking kind of shot. This isn't quite there, but it is, you know, the stakes suddenly for this chicken are very real. And then we get a, a later scene where they're going to eat a chicken, and I could not help but think, oh, this uh, chicken killed in this car escapade earlier has ended up on the dinner table, you know, after after the funeral. But the movie is also filled with those kinds of 
edits, that one of the things that really did strike me was that while we don't have a strong sort of plot goal or dramatic arc to conflict, we do have a sense that each each scene kind of cuts to another on a kind of meaningful musical connection or a thematic kind of thing. There's there's almost always, I mean, the second time that I was watching it, I was sort of counting for it. There's there's almost always in a, in a cut to another person or another sequence, some kind of, you know, wonderful little graphic or sound or thematic connection like that death of the chicken to the funeral for, for nearly everyone throughout the film. It's like one of the things creates this balance between the kind of very everyday and low stakes quality and um, and a kind of elevated poetry to what we're we're watching to sort of find these like magical correspondences. And then also sets up a number of, the, you know, that style, the way that it works, sets up a number of kind of interesting little gags, like particularly around the sequence where, you know, where it seems where one scene after another is sort of built on the idea of hearing someone have sex in another room. And spoiler, that's not what's going on. But like the way in one in one case, you know, the setup is you think that someone's having sex in another room and then it's revealed. And then the in the other, we know that they're not having sex in the other room. But then we cut to characters who hear what's going on and they think that's what's happening. And this kind of magical correspondence really sets us up for these these kind of sound and image gags throughout the film. Yeah, and sound, of course, is very important with having these characters be musicians and then even adding in some things like, I don't know if that cat was meowing when she's holding up that kitten at the window and just like trying to distract Peter, just like, hey, look at this kitten I found, you know, probably wasn't meowing, but you know, what you're going to do? I, I like that they're they're putting that in and just, again, capturing these kind of, it feels very real, feels very genuine. This whole thing of, you know, talking about beds, the whole thing of the old woman, the grandmother, just like pushing down on the mattress so much and all that. And just like, oh, look at this bed. It's pre-war and da, da, da. And just all of these things. I'm just like, I, I so believe all of these characters. And that shot you mentioned earlier where he's holding the horn up to his ear, that's accompanied on the soundtrack by another character off screen playing and then speaking as the shot moves over this field of wheat. And we're just watching watching that kind of ripple as as this conversation goes on for a long time off screen. Really wonderful stuff like that throughout. Kind of reminds me of some of the Jansky stuff that we've been watching as far as just the the beauty of nature. I mean, really, we are, yes, the opening scene might be taking place in the more urban area, but we are stuck in that room. So we don't really see that. For, I would say this entire movie is really set in the pastoral. That idea of just making a film in the vicinity of a single house. I just love movies like that, especially where you just have a small group of characters and yeah, the film doesn't have to really expand beyond that setting to sort of play itself out. Uh, I wondered, actually thought a little bit of the, some of the films with Jacques Rosier, who French new wave director, like, is it the Cote de Orouette, which is a similar kind of idea of just having a bunch of characters in a house for the whole film. It's a much longer film. It's a great way to make a movie and it does give it a kind of organic feeling. You feel like, you know, there was a spontaneity there as uh, the the film developed. And apparently the writer didn't think that he was ever going to be able to get this made kind of thing. Again, he had worked with Foreman before and 
thus probably had worked with Passer before, and it was basically from what it sounds like, Passer's like, I need something to to make a film out of, and he's like, well, I've got this thing. And he was shocked later on when it actually happened. <laughs> he thought there was no way in hell it was actually going to happen. So I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty cool. Um, and then he ended up, the the writer that I'm talking about, Yaroslav Papuchek, I think it is, uh, he ended up going ahead and he became a director as well. And then he worked on the Homolka films. There's at least three of those that I can think of. And then the woman that plays Steppa showed up in at least one of those. That actress was married to Milos Forman. It's very much a kind of bunch of people used to working with each other coming together. And I think, I think the, I mean, Passers, it's really, it's his first film, a uh, feature film. And the way he tells the story is it kind of just evolved out of, he made a promise, he made a promise to a friend. Okay. If you, if you need to sell that script and need to put a, somebody's name on it as a potential director, I'll do it. But then it was was not expected it would ever come to anything. And then suddenly he was a director. And sometimes that's the way it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it does have this feeling like, I mean, Passer talks about how, you know, they're all on the payroll for whatever film institution they were working for. And there's a very relaxed kind of, it just feels like it's evolved. It doesn't feel like a rushed film shoot or anything. It's just sort of evolved out of that particular situation. It's amazing to me that he makes this in 65. The next feature he makes is 71, and he's making that in the U.S., and that's Born to Win with George Siegel in it. How does this happen? And not only is he making it in the U.S., it's in English, and, you know, this is not his native language. So it's pretty extraordinary how quickly both he and Foreman just managed to reestablish themselves in a completely different film industry and different culture, and so quickly... Kind of, I mean, if you've seen Born to Win, uh, and I think the original title was supposed to be Born to Lose, uh, it it really does feel very American. It's about New York City. It just totally feels like he's tapped into the, that particular moment. Uh, it doesn't feel like the work of an outsider, even. It's it's quite extraordinary uh, that transition they both made. Well, you know, by way of contrast, I decided to watch Cutter's Way again uh, this week because it's a really terrific movie and always a good excuse to watch it. And while there's not a ton you can look at that's, you know, formally similar among these movies, they're, they're, they're very different in a lot of ways. And of course, that one's a heavily plotted film. One of the things that does come through in both is the kind of gentle hangout quality then applied to this like noir plot with a murder and all kinds of things. But it's built around people hanging out and even some scenes where the script will have a higher drama going on to the dialogue than is in the performances or in the music that's that's going through and it's it's actually a kind of interesting trick that he pulls there because it makes you while there's this drama it makes you fall in love with the people that are in in these scenes and some of them of course cutter in cutter's way is a really awful kind of character but for instance, in getting to know the other characters around, that kind of hangout quality and that sense of reducing that manifest kind of drama and making it a little bit more friendly, even as people do have kind of a, a higher conflict that's going on, was definitely something that I noticed across the films. And maybe that's something that I'm uh, pulling out of it because I want to and watching them in close succession. But that was that was definitely the, the thing that I found that like united them and made me, you know excited about this directorial style that at once 
a movie like Cutter's Way is very American, but it also has this quality sort of imported from, from Czech cinema of being just a bit more collective and interested and hang out and kind of low key in, in the way that it's putting across its, its plot. I mean, I love Cutter's Way as well. And I mean, it's a film often spoken about as a sort of the end of that kind of 70s cinema aesthetic. It's, it's released in 81 and you know, it's kind of about the, the last days of a certain type of counterculture. And you know, it's a really, it does feel like a valedictorian type film, whereas Intimate Lighting feels like very much like the beginning of a film movement. So Passer is a really extraordinary figure who could kind of work in really different contexts and it would all sort of still come together. And But I agree, it's difficult to really nail like a very distinct directorial style but he clearly was great with actors and including non-professional actors well i'm curious if anybody's ever done this before taken a look at fairy tale theater i'm sure people have written about this before but fairy tale theater back in the early 80s such a rich vein of talent behind that show i know shelly duvall was highly influential with that producer of it but the people that directed, the people that starred in those, I mean, each one of them is just amazing to see the amount of talent that was brought together for one retelling of a classic fairy tale. So good. And he directed the episode The Nightingale, which, if memory serves, that was freaking Mick Jagger in that, Bud Court, um, Mako or Mako is in there. Um, Oh, Barbara Hershey was in it, and I can't even remember who else, but that was just like this amazing cast that was in there and him and, uh, you know, uh, Passer directing it. And each one of those episodes was just a, a full package of star and directorial and writing power. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but, you know, Shelley Duvall deserves more credit uh, for pioneering a mode of television that is now much more common. But in the 80s, even on cable, you know, that that was kind of a remarkable uh, TV series for being able to call on on such talent. Now we kind of take it for granted, but she was a real uh, pioneer. If memory serves, she introduced every single episode. I just looked it up. It was uh, the writer in this one was uh, some lady named Joan Micklin Silver, who has done so many things. I'm not. I'm kidding when I say Joan. Uh, some lady because uh, she's amazing. She's incredible. I, yes, exactly. Or was incredible. R.I.P. But God, the amount of talent with her between the lines, head over heels, aka Chili Scenes of Winter, Hester Street. I mean, she was just amazing. And uh yeah, to oh yeah, Joe Micklin Silver just wrote this episode. Yeah, no big deal. So enough of me fawning over uh fairy tale theater. I think I see my next podcast uh, series in in mind. I will definitely hop in for that if you do it. Oh. The use of music as well is um one of the things I really like about it is, is that it's pulling some kind of interesting meta gags without actually being all meta. You know, it, it made me think of certain Godard films where they're scored, you know, like in particular put me in, in the, I really like first name Carmen quite a bit. And that has a gag with the lawyer for this case at the end of the film being in this like string quartet and the string quartet is the, score all the way through and you keep cutting to them at, at regular intervals and then you realize oh the one of the 
I think cello players is is the the lawyer in this court case. But that's this very tricksy kind of thing, which is very Godard, and I I like it, and I'm you know thinking of that film not not in any kind of bad way here. But Passer does something that's very gentle with the use of music throughout and important beats that get set to you know diegetic music like the the sort of I don't want to call it exactly a drinking contest, but a near sort of drinking contest between these two men as the music is playing and they're talking about the music and the and they 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 sort of compare it to the alcohol they're drinking at at one point and 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 that's that's one kind of thing but then there's also that that sense of the way that the practice and everything gets woven woven through it and some sort of wonderful tricks drawing our attention to the the kind of artifice but also keeping it very grounded in the real you know meta doesn't have to mean that you're playing some kind of arch intellectual game. It's just a way of organizing this this material to weave it all together. I think he made the, a great decision. And he talks about this. The pastor makes a, a comment about he had to decide whether he was going to hire actors who would fake being musicians or musicians who would fake being actors, basically. And he decided to go with the latter, which it gives the film a quality uh, the spon- this sort of spontaneity of the music just arising from the scene when you you can't fake playing those instruments. Uh, it just wouldn't be the same movie. It's kind of the binding thread throughout so much of the film. This this film, which doesn't, as we've said, have a really kind of strong narrative thread leading us through the movie, um, but the the kind of the general pressing nature of, oh, there is a rehearsal going on. They are going to be playing a concert eventually sort of carries us through. And as, as I think it's such a clever idea not to actually include that concert at the end of the movie. Yes. Yeah. 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 I kind of leave you hanging there where we're, like I said, there, there isn't that big moment at the end and we just cut it off or we cut it off with that amazing tableau, which is like a forced tableau. <laughs> They're all left hanging as we're left hanging, which, which is kind of, kind of wonderful. Well, and that ethic that, he mentioned in the in in one interview about how when he and and Foreman were were first getting started, they made this decision to go, I guess, in a little bit of a kind of neo realistic direction and not cast trained actors because their take on it was we're really young, they won't listen to us, and they're corrupt. Like that, he's calling trained actors corrupt, which I found to be really interesting. But but you know, then through this movie, that that choice to go with you know, musicians as actors instead of the opposite, you know, I think it's, I think it's really wonderful. And, and, you know, obviously there's a, there's, there's a, there are cinematic traditions of, you know, working with untrained actors before, but again, this is just like one of those reminders that there's something that when you get it right, that's so cinematic and puts the trained actors within a cast into a little bit of a different zone when they're working with, with untrained people that, really can have a wonderful alchemy to it and certainly does in this film yeah we talked a lot on the uh loves of a blonde uh commentary about having one of our favorite people uh spencer vladimir menzik is there amongst these non-professional actors and he's just kind of like pushing them in different directions and then also pulling and and reacting to them which is wonderful i love to see the way that he just kind of improvises along with these other non-professional actors and very much in the the kind of um, the pastoral spirit of of the film, you know, the the people and the landscapes and the house and everything are, you know, artificial for making the film, but the whole approach 
brings everything together, very much makes it one. I noticed that our subtitles weren't as good as they could be because I there was fortunately a uh, another episode of the Golden Sixties about passers and they had clips from this in there. And it makes total sense. As I was watching that, they were playing clips from Intimate Lighting. And Bombas, when they first arrive, he goes to his bush and he's just like, would you like a gooseberry? And because in the version that I think we all watched, he's like, do you want a strawberry? And I was like, that doesn't look like a strawberry plant whatsoever. And then when I saw the translation of do you want a gooseberry, I was like, oh, that that's a gooseberry bush yes okay that makes a lot more sense so i'm hoping in future there will be a better translated version of this because if it's just something silly and stupid like that who knows what else is different on this i'd love to have a little bit better please do do better next time yeah is that just not trusting that audience knows what gooseberries are that's maybe I mean, there are some interesting cultural things in here. The whole thing with the uh, fish in the bathtub, because I remember uh, in the cremator, they keep a carp in the bathtub that they're going to butcher for Christmas. And it was like, oh, well, that's really nice. And so I thought, you know, you're talking about the chicken. And I was like, well, I think they were supposed to serve them fish because they probably had that fish there for like a big celebration. The guests are here. We're going to serve them this fish. But then the chicken died. And that little snot-nosed kid. Yeah, the chicken died. And yeah, like, it was a crime of opportunity. So, so one of the things that I find interesting is, is a, um, it's gently done, but a kind of tension that's kept up between stuff that is very natural and everyday, and yet also allowing for some kind of fantastical and surreal touches. You know, obviously, I mentioned before the horn up against his head while we're hearing a horn that has a kind of surreal displacement to it. But especially in the in the latter part of the movie where they're they're getting drunk and they're creeping around the house and there's the talk of, you know, hearing women snore and all this kind of stuff. There, there's a strange sense to it. And I watched it a couple of times to see what, what exactly was going on there, because I was like, oh, it feels almost like they're dreaming each other. And of course, that's not what's going on. But there is there's a kind of interesting mood and everything in the way that it plays out and how, for instance, you know, they sneak back into that room and then his wife sneaks up and he already appears to be sleeping. And, is you know, it's a very traditional kind of cinematic gag. But there was something about it that was extra sort of convincing to it, that it was really very much from her point of view at that moment, like he really was, you know, sleeping and that moment that they're going to go break in on her. But then she's awake. You know, that that was interesting. And then that leads into that really beautiful moment where he swings his arm across the frame and then the music starts up and then there's a cut to this kind of abstract, you know, sort of glow on the horizon, like out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, and it looks like I haven't been expecting exactly this kind of orchestra thing, but the way that I first read it was like, oh, is that the is that light on the curtain that they're now like the performance and they're going to play and this is like a bigger deal? And then, of course, it turns out just to be car lights coming over. But then additionally, the car lights light them up in a way that's, you know, really heightened and kind of magical. And I know that, it, you know, simple to simple to shoot, simple to stage and make that kind of thing. Not necessarily easy, but, you know, it's a simple sort of trick. And even going up to that sort of final shot of that sequence where the car is sort of beautifully positioned in the in the garage with the, the chicken on top silhouetted, 
so perfectly, just, you know, dark and silhouetted against the background as he's arrived home. And there are in the cutting, and then finally in that last act, in the in some interesting, hard-to-describe ways that it's shot, that it really, really does go into a slightly dreamy kind of quality that I really, really admired, and I especially admired because I couldn't quite always see how the magic trick was done. It's it's easy for me to describe the dreaminess of that car coming over the hill. Okay, cool. But at that part where I almost like had a a different narrative going in my head when they're they're checking in on the wives and you know kind of sneaking around the house and it there are those antlers on the wall which again are are natural but again kind of heighten things that yeah it sort of entered this this like dream space that felt different from the rest of the film there. It becomes completely unpredictable what's going to happen. Because, I mean, the convention is, okay, they have this drunken heart to heart and all of the, 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 you know, the, the displeasure that this guy feels stuck in this place is going to come out and whatever, you know, dark side of their relationship is there is going to come out. But that doesn't happen at all. They just uh, get drunk and they seem to wander out looking for a bus. And then the next day they've got a hangover and uh, we don't really know <laughs> how they wound up back home either. And the kind of hangover that, he, again, this is this is like one of those weird little, you know, elements of artifice. He's got the hangover that he's got to wrap up his head. And then his wife has the toothache where she's wrapped up. So that that little correspondence and then that little drink, you know, at the end that gets stuck in everybody's uh, glass as they're trying to, um, you know, take their, their little shot is, uh, yeah, these these like, you know, slightly, slightly heightened kind of things are really nice. I love how the it's the grandmother who tells because everybody's all pretty much given up on trying to drink this eggnog, I think it is. Uh, but then she's just like, no, you just got to have patience. And so then that's they they follow her lead, and then we 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 move away, and they're probably still standing there. What did you guys think of the scene where it was like a party going on inside? There was that. I would say florid, but it's black and white. This kind of drunken, little heavier set man, and they're cutting between him and then Steppa and Peter out in the car, and they're debating about uh, the honking and what, how it means I love you. And she wants to do like three flat things, kind of like blue velvet. And he's just like, no, no, it's like I love you rather than I love you. And then all that intercutting with what's going on inside of the building. I love that sequence. And that was another one with the, the kind of like interesting sound correspondences that the car horn becomes an instrument uh, in a way as there as, as there's a, a dance going on inside. Yeah, the whole I love you thing is very kind of so low stakes, but like just this wonderful, playful kind of hanging out with the characters as even characters that know each other seem to be getting to know each other better. That, that like all all the movie is, you know, if you really wanted to summarize this plot, it's like a group of people all get to know each other better or get to know each other at all, you know, over over the course of the, of the film. In, in an interview with Passer, he, he, he talks about uh, casting, I think it's Carol Blaschek as Bambas. And he reveals that the actor was dying of cancer at the time they made the film. And he died really soon after they finished making it. And he wasn't aware of the man's illness, but uh, he felt in retrospect that some of the pathos of that character was kind of uh, kind of more explicable because of that reason that he knew he was dying. So we better check that that was the... I think it's Carol Blaschek who played Bambas. 
Yeah, you're right about that. And it, it was another one of those characters or one of those actors that this is his only credited role. He and Peter, this is their only credited role. It's very interesting to go through this cast list and be like, one movie, one movie, one movie. And yeah, it's when you get to Vera where you get like, oh, yeah, she was in a ton of stuff, which makes sense now that you remind me that she's Foreman's wife. So, and she's still going strong from what I can see. More power to her. Absolutely. Well, no, that, that's also, that is really interesting. And I don't want to make too much of, you know, his imminent death, you know, while the film was, was being made. But something like, there's something captured that's really beautiful where there's that moment in the beginning, do you ever get angry? And there's a kind of laughter around it. And then the wife is like, oh, no, he doesn't. And then a, a couple of scenes later, we've got this little bit of anger or with a chicken around the, the car. And, you know, in fact, the chicken ends up dead. As a, as a result of, of this moment of anger. And again, I, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this sense of getting to know one another, they have this uh, meeting of the minds over a drink and music. It seems like it could go in some more kind of explosive direction, but I think, you know, does a lot in just getting to know one another's, uh, you know, disappointments. And also, you know, that they, they spend a lot of time going on about how the music or a person has balls, you know, in a scene. And, and that, you know, subtly there's a kind of sense of how does that bounce back on them? Um, and none of it is like underlined. We don't have exclamation points behind any of it. We're not building up to like a huge conflict. But there is all this like wonderful under the surface simmering kind of conflict. And I think that that like beat of thinking about his his anger at the beginning is is like, one of one of the the ways that we're just you know looking looking for this 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 like edge uh, in a very kind of friendly exchange between people. I was surprised there wasn't more conflict around uh, one of the older guys looking at Steppa and just enjoying the way that she walks and probably watching her ass. I'm like, that's also a remarkable scene. That the, yeah, that it's, it's it's this very masculine among these men and the older men. But yeah, you're right that there's there's this kind of sense of appreciation and pride that the that that he has that this older man is really appreciating you know is really appreciating her rather than a kind of conflict between them it's like one of the notes that also speaks to this isn't a particularly horny movie but there's a generosity to the horniness that is in the film that i like you know that the that sense of very easygoing sense of expressing sexual attraction and and whatnot and we kind of get this spread out among older and younger people and different shapes of people in the in the film in a way that I think is um, more common in the world, not called the United States of America. We, we learn a lot about these characters in a very short amount of time. And I do really get a sense uh, of this sort of history that, that they have in this family and uh, without it being you know, expositional in any great way, or, you know, there's not people telling lots of long anecdotes about the past, but you just get these little bits and pieces that allow you to really paint a picture of every individual in the movie. So. Yeah. This also came up for me rewatching Cutter's Way. You know, I, in, in, in the classroom now, I kind of have this mantra that I'm trying to get through to my students which is that behavior is always better than backstory. And we've very much gotten into a mode of backstory being our way of understanding character. And it's not that backstory is bad. I'm not, I'm not about like banishing all exposition and backstory. It's just really thinking about like in cinema, you are watching and taking in how people are behaving 
with one another in the moment. And that behavior in the moment tells you so much about where they're from and uh, the kind of subtlety and uh, and subtext of what's going on. And right out of the gate, for instance, the first couple of scenes in Cutter's Way were really given these like roundabout ways of understanding the characters that are that are you know as written. And then you know Passer is bringing out these performances and behavior with people that like really deepens every one of those exchanges. That tell you only a little bit. The exchange of dialogue tells you a little bit. And then the behavior around it tells you more. And this is a very, very behavior-oriented movie and a very behavior-oriented kind of cinema that's that's really exciting. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, Matthew, I know you're teaching a class on the French New Wave right now. And it's interesting that it was taking place at somewhat the same time. I mean, what really, I think, helped kick the Czech New Wave off was the death of Stalin, loosening up of things going on in Czechoslovakia. There wasn't necessarily that big of a, an event necessarily that I can think of that kicked off the French new wave. But it's interesting that they're happening around the same time and that it is handled so differently between the two cultures. Well, I guess the French new wave did arrive a little bit earlier. And I think it was an inspiration to lots of, you know, burgeoning film movements around the world. But I guess it's 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 also just the spirit of the films that I guess more so than any particular consistent technique that we see across all these different new waves. I think it's this youthful spirit, although not everybody was that young, but a sort of sense of lightness and you know a sense that there is a new type of sensibility in the post-war era that's centered on on youthfulness and sexuality and uh, and also kind of a a new type of approach to the technology, which in itself was, I think, in many ways, becoming much more portable. And um, so these things are all kind of happening at the same time. But the, the big distinction between the two movements is the French were making films in a relatively free, open marketplace. Not entirely free. There was a lot of censorship, to be honest, but nothing compared to what they had to had to endure in Czechoslovakia, um, which would only become worse. And I mean, it's remarkable that this film, Intimate Lighting, was banned after 68 for decades, you know, and it seems such an innocuous, harmless kind of film that doesn't really have any overt political content at all. But instead, uh, no, it was perceived that way. Um, But yeah, so I mean, these filmmakers had a, in Czechoslovakia, had a moment of, opportunity to experiment with the form and but it didn't last very long whereas i guess in in the french new wave there was just a lot more i guess there were a lot more films made as part of that movement and it was able to kind of evolve into something else gradually but you know it was a pretty abrupt curtailing of the new wave of that's for sure I know that there were professional filmmakers, but then there were critics. Just the way that some of these filmmakers came to the fore in France, and then you look at Czechoslovakia, and almost everybody is a graduate of FAMU. In France, you don't really have a common enemy, and it felt like there was a lot more infighting between the filmmakers and a lot more sniping between them. You know, I'm thinking, of course, Godard and Truffaut and things. But then you've got 
you know, it wasn't a utopian existence with the Czech filmmakers. There was a little bit of that tension in there. Some people were kind of left in the, in the dust and there were some like, oh, that's the old, old style where the new style type of thing, but it didn't feel as, as bratty sometimes to me as the French, but it, it, it it's remarkable to me. Yeah. That they're both considered new wave movements. They're both doing you know, very cutting edge things, but just approaching it from such different directions. I mean, I would say the common enemy of the French New Wave in its early days was the war in Algeria. So uh, that was, you know, a lot of those films do respond to that. And, you know, there was censorship, so they had to kind of find ways to kind of comment on it. If, if they could, certain things were banned. As far as the film school graduate element to the Czechoslovakian new wave. I think um, I think that's significant. It, there's a more comparison in a way to what was going on in Poland at the same time. Right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. This is Mr. Kirker, our new boss at the office. This is our assistant manager, Miss Winter. Tea get in those bottles. Come now. Tell me everything. Have you have you been saying anything to him? What if I did? I don't know what you feel. Eleanor, I love you. That's right. We are wrapping up Czech Timber with a look at the English-Czech hybrid 90 Degrees in the Shade. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Spencer and Matthew. So, Matthew, what is keeping you busy, sir? Well, I just uh, finished up working on a commentary uh, that's going to be part of a big Walter Hill Blu-ray box set from Imprint. I did the commentary on The Driver, and uh, I'm teaching a course right now on uh, the French New Wave, as you said. So um, that's what's going on for me. Any uh, more work on your Wells scholarship? Because you've done a ton around that. There always, there's always a handful of different Wells-related uh, research papers, articles that I, I want to get to. So I will be getting to some eventually. I did an interview recently with the flamenco guitarist who worked with Wells on a very obscure Italian TV show called In the Land of Don Quixote. And uh, he's still around. And... So yeah, I think he might be the last living composer who worked with Orson Welles now that Michelle Legrand's gone. But so I have to write that up. Uh, he, he has a, some fascinating uh, insights into that uh, collaboration, but uh, it, I'll get to it. And Spencer, how about yourself? What's keeping you busy? Well, school is starting in again very soon. So I've 
that's that's going to be very busy, and I'm um, finishing a feature, so that's also very busy, and um, that'll keep me going at least through the end of the year. Fantastic! I can't wait to see it because I know you've been talking about this for a while. You had all the COVID delays. Yeah, there were COVID delays, and you know, life delays, and all kinds of all kinds of things. Yeah, so long be a, a long time in in gestation, but you know, hopefully, all of that, both the the good and the bad reasons to uh, slow down will result in a better movie. So thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other podcasts that I'm working on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Rankin on Bass, and just started another one called Podcast of Power, which is, luckily, thank goodness, it's kind of a short run thing or it'll be running for five years but it's only eight episodes at a time because we're talking about lord of the rings rings of power so something actually contemporary though set thousands of years in the past they are all available where finer podcasts can be found thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world Thank you.